Bienvenidos y bienvenidas. Welcome everyone who is here. And this is our time where the little ones, Younger People's Church, hey, hey, go with Miss Amy. Miss Amy is right at the door. If you have not signed in your kids, there's a place at the front at the welcome table where every week you can sign in your kids and this is their time to run and go. So thank you, Miss Amy. May uh, the spirit wind of God be upon your mouth, even as you're walking away, as you disciple our children into the life, love, and justice of Jesus. Bye, Keely. <laughs> Now he doesn't want to leave. Earlier he wanted to escape. We were all running around. <laughs> um, my name is Ines Velasquez McBride. For those of you who may not know me, I'm one of the co-lead pastors here at the church we hope for. Gracias, hermano. This is my brother from my other mother. And it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. This evening. This evening. I'm still trained. We'll get it at some point. We'll get it. We'll get it at some point. Thank you, Liz and Joel, for leading us in worship. This is your first time in two years that you have not led together. So it is a big thing, a big miracle. Thank you for inviting and ushering the spirit here today. Man, and Liz is a secret weapon. Like I've heard you lead multiple times, but to bring Liz into this space, goodness gracious, and the two of you together. So thank you. Thank you, both of you. Um, and I do want to welcome a dear friend, a younger brother, um, a young man who I've known since he was 12 years old and uh, happened to be in town in Orange County. He's with a group called Urban Doxology that produces just beautiful, uh, intentional, meaningful music and highly, highly recommend it. He plays guitar for him. Um, and I wish I could say I taught this guy how to play guitar, but that is just not true. When he was 12, he was like shredding beyond anything I knew was possible. So Chipper Vi's in the back with our dear brother, Rob. So y'all say hi to Chipper. Chipper and I were in Arkansas together. Now he's over in Virginia. Then he was in OC. And then because it's Familia and Melica is in the OC, she picked him up on Melica's the bomb diggity. Brought him and we'll be dropping him off. As long as he was good company. Maybe you'll just leave him right. there. <laughs> um, church, if you're able, would you stand with us as we read the word together? This is from Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we'll be, verse 4 is where we'll be starting. And uh, let me, let me. Speak this over you, and then Inez and I will go back and forth. In that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had caused it, not caused it to rain upon the earth, there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth, and water from the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, human from the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this human became a living being, an earthling. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put this human whom he had formed. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the human should be alone. I will make him a helper and Ezra Kenetko as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the human to see what the human would call them. And whatever the human called every living creature, that was its name. It gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the human, there had not been a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man broke out in poetic musical song. This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be you may have God. a seat, church. For far too long, we've been reading this holy book that even looks extra holy in that red it's Bible. It's my seminary Bible. It looks like. That's Maybe extra books in there. Gold embossed on the front and everything. Um, this holy book has actually been harmful in many ways, depending on whose hand it has been in. And for many of us, we have inherited false theologies, divisive ideologies along the way, like ancient heirlooms that were filled with pain but lacked all the promise. Sometimes this good book has sure been made to be bad, and while we can't take all that back, especially not tonight, um, we can begin together, together, to envision a new way forward, together, beginning in the beginning. And our hope this evening is not gonna be to, to address all the layers that are in this text because there's so many layers and we have to go at it slowly as we have been talking about uncreating and recreating uh, and uh, theologies that have been handed down to us. And so as we uncreate and recreate, our hope this evening is to offer a foundational theology of how human beings were created in the image of God. We come to this text often very quickly with presuppositions, very quickly with the lens of marriage, but uh, we want to speak about it beyond marriage. It's bigger than just, it's not exclusive to marriage. Before procreation was assigned, humankind was given identity from God and by God and work from God and by God. And this is inherent to all humans, whether you're married or not. This is for every person that's not co-pastoring a church like we are, you know, co-pastoring together. This text shapes our identity and our sense of belonging. And so there's many layers in this text today. We won't be able to address all of them today, but we want to talk about three lies and three truths. Three lies that we have inherited to uncreate and three truths that we, be, we, we believe we see in the text that we want to recreate and they're foundational for our church. And we believe this is identity shaping for us as a church. So this is an academic. This is not just some idea or some thought. This is true to our relationships with each other, uh, with God, with creation, with ourself. And so may we pray and ask for the spirit to lead us into wisdom, into insight, into truth. God, we come to you with hope, with expectation, with anticipation that as we open up your word, you will speak to us. And so as we open up your word, we also open up our ears, we open up our eyes, we open up our hearts, and we say, God, our hands are open to you. Would you place good things in our hands today, God? God, our father and God, our mother, God, the only perfect parent, we thank you for this moment. And we, we truly ask and we beg, uh, we already have ushered in the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this text and also illuminate our wounds about this text. We trust your hand, Holy Spirit. We trust your wounds, Jesus. We trust your, your hands, Father God and Mother God. And we ask that you would be the one who is sewing us back together from the places where we have been and where our scars have been as well. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, for your help in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here, and I hope that uh, as we are in 
sitting in the word together that God really meets you in a, in a meaningful way. This is one of our favorite things to do is to preach together side by side. We don't do it all the time. No. Uh, just because we're co-pastoring doesn't mean we co-everything. We right. have some things that we don't co. You got your and life, we, uh, I got my life. Uh-huh, we try. Um, but we do enjoy getting to come together. And especially in a text like this where it's very meaningful, very intentional, very purposeful. When God is opening up this image of male and female, it just felt like an opportunity that we couldn't pass up. All right, so let's look at lie number one, and then we'll just speak the truth right back over it. Lie number one is that the main theme of this Genesis 2 creation story is to demonstrate the distinct separation between man and woman. Maybe you've heard that story before. Maybe you've heard this story told in such a way that the whole aim of it is to separate the distinct aspect of what man is and what woman is. And we want to bring a truth into that imagination that is so much bigger and so much more beautiful than just that one piece. This text is not solely aimed to separate man and woman. This text is doing so much more. We would say the truth, number one, to receive instead is that the main theme of the Genesis 2 creation story highlights how we were created to be connected. This is not a story about separation. This is not a story about moving us distinct from one another. This is actually a story that the whole thrust of it, the whole movement of it, the whole poetic aim of this part of the Bible is to show actually how we're connected. And I want to look briefly at three ways that we are corrected in this corrected, connected in this divinely inspired poetic telling of creation. Number one, as we look at this initial aspect of the story, it says that the Lord God looks at the earth that God is creating and then begins to recognize that there is this aspect of humanity that is still to come. And it says the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so the first thing that we want to find out about humanity, and I think the word humanity is actually a helpful interpretation there of the text, is that it is not just this distinct man and woman, even yet. If you go back to the Hebrew and really look at it, it looks as if the writer is really trying to distinguish, no, first I'm creating human, and in a moment I'll come back and I'll make human into man into woman. And so if you heard us doing some gymnastics to bring human into the text as we were reading the scripture over us, that's what we're doing is we're bringing that word that we believe is in the original text there. And so what does God first do with human? God first intimately connects with human in this beautiful, intimate way. God breathes life into humanity. The breath of God the life-giving breath of God courses through our veins, fills up our lungs. Humanity takes its first breath. First movement in this story is God's connection in the most, listen, if you're near enough for somebody's breath to be upon you, you are close (laughs) to them. Something is happening there. God's intimate from the beginning. And so the story is first and foremost a creation of connection, connection with God. And the second one is connection with all of creation. It says that this man was formed from the dust, from the earthy topsoil of the ground, that this man, this human is created as God takes earth. And begins to mold it and move it with the very breath of God. And so this human is connected with God through breath. 
and then connected with land through the earth. And so our connection right off the bat is this connection with God and then connection with all that God has created. We come from the very land that our feet rest upon right now. Mm. It's a story of creation. And that's a story of connection. And even the language here, the name Adam comes from this language of Adama, from the earth. That's where the name comes from, from the land, from the creation, from the dust, from the dirt. This name that we receive right from the beginning is very clearly telling us, no, 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 you come from this ground, you come from this land. And then the third piece is the piece that happened later in the text as Pastora read this piece and really welcomed us into what does it mean when woman and man enter in the scene together. It's this language of ish and isha. Mm -hmm. Out of man, woman is created. And so rather than what so often happens, distinguishing those two so they're separate and they're disconnected and we're cut off, no, you are man, you are woman, what I believe is happening is that when man is created from the very bone of his being, passed over in the same intimacy of God's breath, that nearness is created to create woman and man together. Again, I don't believe the story there is a story of separation. I believe it is a connection and creation at the very beginning that we were created one from another. You know, every translation is an interpretation, and so our English Bibles, my Spanish Bible, whatever other language you may have, uh, just doesn't just doesn't reach to the depth of language. So this may be the nerdiest uh, of sermon we ever preach, and we apologize to our professor who said, "Do not do this in church. Do not bring all this seminary in." But we think it's important because it shapes identity and it shapes a sense of belonging. And so, if you have your Bibles, and this this might be your time to pull out a pen or a pencil, or to be able to mark next to those very important words that God created a human at the beginning in, in the verses that we are in our chapter two, verses four through seven, and then 18 through 25. It's important to see that God is creating Adam from Adama, that God is creating a human from the dust of the earth. And then God begins like this creator God that we've been talking about begins differentiating the beautiful humanity and the differences in humanity that we have. And so um, that's what we mean about Adam and Adama. Adam, uh, this human was created from the dust. And then it isn't until verse 22 that we hear the words ish for man and isha for, for woman. And so what we want to see here is that there is, um, there is harmony. There is not hierarchy. There is harmony between, between this earth creature. Uh, God is creating, if there's any hierarchy, uh, it's that uh, the earth is submitted to the humans that God has created. But there's harmony, not hierarchy. They're distinct from one another, but they're not, um, uh, they're not gendered. You know, it's very quick. We can very quick come to this text and say, well, this is how a woman should be, or this is how a man should be. Or uh, you could make a list. If we, if we were in the Zoom chat right now, y'all could make a list of all the things we have said. This is how a woman should be. This is how a biblical woman should be. Ooh, does not trigger anything in us. <laughs> this is how a biblical man should be. <laughs> um, and so the gendered roles uh, uh, kind of theology comes from this text where we assign that this is how it should be. Where God is being the creator God, story maker God, potter in the clay kind of God. And he is, and God is creating right now how God wants to create these humans with, with distinction. They are distinct, but they're equal equal before God and equal before each other or next to each other. There's distinction without opposition. 
There's dominion over creation, but there's not dominion over the other. That's not how God created us. Amen. Thank you. I can't see from far away with my reader's glasses. <laughs> there's harmony, not hierarchy. Uh, from the beginning, we're not even going to go to Genesis 3 right now. We're going to sit in the chapter that only lasted for about five minutes before the serpent came, right? Or only lasted five minutes, but I think this is where we ought to be rooted in. Where there's mutuality and not subordination among the humans that God created. So these humans, they came from the earth. Uh, before Genesis 3 exists, this is the most pure creation. And if you read through Genesis as a book from beginning, uh, beginning in the next chapter, you will see how the, the uncreation, the uncreation begins to happen in the downward spiral where there's divisiveness, separation. Eve separates from God. Man separates from Eve and says, the woman you gave me, Lord, you know, she made me do this, blame her rather than bearing the burden together. But what I see in chapter 2, verse 18 is, then Yahweh said, it is not good for the human to be alone. I will make the human a helper as his partner. Um, again, this is the best translation. I'm going to get into it a little bit later, but God removes isolation in this text. After God has been saying in chapter 1, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. All of a sudden, God finds something that is not good. God is the evaluator and the rectifier of this situation. He evaluates and he rectifies, and God is always actually throughout humanity removing isolation. Because as I like to say, isolation leads to self-deception, and self-deception leads to self-destruction. And so there's power in the life and death of these words right here. Life and death is a subject of this narrative. And by life, I mean unity and fulfillment and harmony and delight. They did not know that they were naked before God and before each other. Before death comes in, they did not know. And this divisiveness is, is uh, pervasive. It is contagious. It is inherited. I'm still healing from, from the brokenness of how we have not seen this text is hierarchical. And in my opinion, I'll just say this is my opinion, it is wrong. It's a wrong interpretation of the text or less than faithful and flawed to see that there's a hierarchy or domination over each other. How I have experienced it, I can only speak from my own experience, how I have experienced this is through toxic patriarchy, through machismo in my culture as being Nicaraguan as well. There's, you know, sex, uh, racism there as well, but mostly, I always say, uh, uh, sexism is older than racism, actually. That this demon of domination that has dehumanized, destroyed, and silenced, and strangled, and subjugated women, especially women of color, is old. It is an old wound, and it is a deep wound. And it is a pain that if we open up the wounds in our hearts, all of us here, men, women, however you identify in between, we, can, we have stories, right? I am not alone. I know I'm not alone here. And so the pain that we have felt because of this divisiveness, this brokenness, um, is opposite of how God intended it to be. Um, God created us to be connected. Um, this is our story. Our calling is to be, is to be connected. So that's lie number one. Uh, lie number one is that there was this idea that we were supposed to be separated, but God and God's truth and God's sovereignty and God's design and desire at the very beginning is aiming to connect us, connect us to God, connect us to the land, connect us to one another, connect us to even our true identity as who we are. Lie number two, lie number two is this, that man alone is to be the head and leader over and above 
women. Can I get in it? No, it's not there. <laughs> Good night, no, Twitch. I got a night, Twitch, right now. Um, the truth that we want to speak over and on top of this. The creation story shows our need for community with one another. Not that one of us is to solely and alone, isolated, be above the other, but instead that we actually need one another alongside of each other, side to side and face to face. A former colleague of mine used to say this, that, that God is a God of order. And so if God is a God of order, then man must be here. And then underneath that woman must be because that is order. And I remember saying back to him as quickly as I possibly could, um, is there a world in which this and this side-by-side side also still looks like order? Is side-by-side side chaos? This is order too. God can still be a God of order. God could still create in such a way that we can live and learn and lead and serve and share side-by-side side and face-to-face face and be in this thing together. Now, since man is created first, and the man is entrusted to name the animals, and the woman only comes from the man's body, then the story must be highlighting men's headship over women. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't need a translation for that grunt. <laughs> Maybe something else is going on. If we are created to be connected, thank you, Ms. Glenda. Then the truth to highlight from the connection here is not man's firstness, but instead man's aloneness. Hmm. Remember in Genesis 1, we noted how God created out of usness and into usness, and that usness was missing with man. And so we see God begin to roll out all of the animals and all of creation and all of the things to say, could this possibly be a suitable helper that would alleviate that aloneness? The only thing in creation that has not been good up to this point. It's all been good. It's all been very good. And then we say it's not good for man to be alone. And so it's at this point that the not goodness begins to be alleviated because God recognizes that creation needs to entail community. There must be a communal aspect to creation. And so it's not until God actually creates woman that man bursts out in poetic song. We often look at these texts as like these like critical, historical, analytical science book that we have to examine with the microscope. But tell me the last time you were reading science that broke out in poetry. <laughs> I mean, science is poetic and beautiful, don't get me wrong, but what we're reading here is an oral culture narrative story retelling that could be passed down from generation to generation around the campfire, at the bedside, in the morning on a hike in the woods, so that we could hear it and hold it and know it. And so we get this song from Adam. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. What he's highlighting is that I'm no longer alone. And the one who was created was created from me. We are in it together, juntos, side by side and face to face. And so if we let the scriptures breathe, if we just go back and let Genesis 2 kind of speak to us as it's aiming to speak to us, we can hear the poetic cry of this one saying, it wasn't good for me to be alone. Not a, it wasn't good for me to be head over nothing. Now I need to be head over something. Right. Say that. It just, it just wasn't good for me to be alone. 
And so God alleviates the aloneness. Um, creation is occurring in ascending order. So if you've been joining us from chapter one to chapter two, God is creating in very general. And then he moves, God moves to the particular and more differentiation there. Alison Young wrote an article for uh, the Priscilla Papers. It's a Christians for Biblical Equality uh, magazine. And she flips the narrative. She flips the story and says, what if it had happened the other way around? Let's see, see what would happen if we flipped the narrative. And so I, I wanna read from what she wrote because it's, it's genius for us to like flip the script. She says, we should not assume that the creation of Adam first means anything other than he was created first, or that the creation of Eve second means anything other than that she was created second. To assume that this suggests a relationship of subordination is to read things into the text that are simply not there. And Anne Atkins has stated this point by saying this, suppose God had made the woman first and the man out of her. Now, who comes over as a helpless, dependent one, the weaker, inferior partner? Why, the woman again, of course. Because she could not cope alone. Man had to be made to bail her out. Part of her body was taken away to make him. She can never again be complete on her own. The man was made last after the plants, after the animals, and certainly after the woman. He is the crown of God's creation. He was made out of human flesh. She is nothing but dust. Even her name, man, now of course, is a diminutive version of his, woman. And she is to cleave to him, and as it happens, this word is used almost universally for a weaker cleaving to a stronger. No doubt a great deal would be made of this if the woman were to cleave to the man. Most significant of all, she is to leave her parents and her way of life to join him and adapt to him. She was clearly found to be inadequate on her own. And so she... <laughs> Ooh, let us take a deep breath. Let us take a deep breath right there. She was made to be inadequate on her own. That's a hard line to read. And even though I'm making laughter and lamenting, I'm laughing, I'm also lamenting on the inside because again, I know that these are true wounds and true stories about our lives that we're still healing from as we're uncreating and recreating. So I don't, wanna, I don't want my humor to make light of what I know is very painful for me. And we do have a lot of painful stories. So how you see this third lie is very important. How you see... Um, how we read verse 18 in chapter two of it is not good for the human to be alone. I will make uh, him a helper as his partner. Um, how you see these next two small words dictates how you will relate to women for the rest of your life. Um, how, you know, you may not have children, but if you do have daughters one day or, or, or sons, uh, if you have sisters, if you have a mother, um, if you have aunties and uncles and abuelas and abuelitas, how we see these next two small words will dictate the rest of the biblical narrative. It'll dictate how we read Paul. I got issues with Paul, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the epistles. Um, but we use this text to filter everything else in the biblical narrative. And line number three is this. And this is very, very personal to me. Um, so I speak of it from my heart. The line number three is that the creation story casts women in the lesser role of helper and a clear subordinate to the leader role granted only to men. That is line number three. But the truth is that the role of helper or Ezra Kenetgo that God entrusts to women highlights the Imago Dei in women as image bearers of God's divine strength. 
And I'm going to break it down for you. Again, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm getting a little bit academic, but I think this is important in verse 18. The translations of Ezra Kenegal, where it says helper. Some of your Bibles will say helper, suitable helper. This one is the NRSV, helper as his partner. Please write next to it. The two Hebrew words are Ezer Kenegal. E-Z-E-R is the noun. Kenegdo, K-E-N-E-G-D-O is the transliteration, is the adjective. And Ezer Kenegdo. We needed two words, uh, sisters, to describe us. We needed two words to describe. And the English and the Spanish does not do the original language any justice. And the connotations that we have for helper and the cultural conditioning of women and girls uh, has, has been, that has been given has impacted how we see this word. We see it as an assistant, as a doormat at, at, at worst, um, as less than, as a weak, weaker vessel. I may have had that in my... In my uh, when we got married, Rob and I may have had that in my vows and didn't even think about it, but if I could do a redo of my vows, I wouldn't call myself a weaker vessel, not after what I'm about to explain to you. So we need to dig deep into the text to reconstruct a story that God wrote, that God said about you and your identity. God is the story maker. And this word is Ezra Konecko, and it means a companion equal to corresponding to in strength and power. And it also connotes an idea that they're face to face, not just like next to each other, but like face to face, eye to eye at the same stature when I wear heels. I'm at the same stature as Bobby, <laughs> okay? Um, this is a God-given name. Who names and how it is used is important in the text. So the first naming was not of man naming the woman. It was God saying, I will make, I will make an Ezra Kenegdo. It means a companion equal to, corresponding to, face to face. So I've changed my Bible and said a better translation would be a partner, an equal and corresponding partner or an equal partner. God creates a human corresponding to Ha'adam, to the human. There's mutuality. There's no subordination. There's no help um, the, the lesser than kind of idea, the inferiority. Any more than the man needing to be subordinate to the earth because the earth was created first. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, are we going to say that we are subordinated to, to the earth because the earth and the dust were created first and the animals were created first? No. Um, both humans also aren't opponents to each other, but they're harmonious. Nevertheless, because of the fall in the next chapter, uh, we have been pitted against each other and we need redemption and we need healing. That comes from Jesus. This word Ezra Kenegdo occurs 17 times in the Old Testament to refer to God. So God is described as an Ezra. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my what? Where does my Ezra come from? That's right. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. My Ezra comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We wouldn't think of God as someone who is subordinate to anybody. And so this Ezer translation is used to describe God in other places as someone who is strong and powerful. So we wouldn't think of God as someone who is subordinate to anybody, lesser than or inferior. In fact, God is talked about as an Ezer, as a rescuer, as one who saves in battle, as a strong power that we run to in times of trouble. So Ezer is not weak. Woman is not weak because God is not weak. So God names you Esser. 
Not God names me Ezer, and who names is important and for what purposes is important. A human did not name you. A man did not name you. God named you Ezer. So I don't get my spiritual authority from uh, my co-pastor Bobby. I don't get my spiritual authority from my wonderful husband Rob. We get our spiritual authority from God who is also Ezer. Amen. Thank you. I see you kind of clapping there, Annie. So it is with women Ezers. God, the supreme Ezer, named this creation women Ezer, and they are life-giving. We are light-bearers. Our voices are vital and valuable. We build up, not tear down. We bear fruit-bearing seed in our communities of wisdom through our witness. So God creates this distinction, again, of Ezer Kenego, and it is very important how we see these words for the rest of um, the narrative. There's no hierarchy. There's no gender roles. There's no characteristics of how a woman should act or not act, be or not be, feel or not feel. There's no attitudes or emotions attached to him or her. Um, there's just equality. Here's an example of how this text has been used against me. I was a, uh, studying at a Bible Institute several years ago in Arkansas, and I shall leave it nameless. But um, the, the woman that was speaking had been to another seminary, and she was speaking about this, this creation story. And then she was ascribing the gift of leadership and saying that only women, only men could, could, um, could lead and have the spiritual gift of leadership. And so I remember her saying these very words, the one thing that Eve shouldn't have taken when she looked at the tree, the one thing that was tempting her was for her to want to have the, the, the gift of leadership. And I was wiggling uncomfortably in my seat. But the one thing she couldn't have because of the order of creation, that's the thing that she took. So I remember looking at the woman that was next to me. She was the only other uh, woman of color. And, and she looked at me and said, can you believe this? So she said a word and I was like, I cannot believe this. I had to step outside because I didn't have language, but I felt it in my body that there was something wrong with that. You have to do a lot of spiritual gymnastics to argue from the text that women don't have this God-giving authority. And it is dangerous to add roles and giftings as exclusive to one gender and not the other. It is dangerous to as ascribe the gifts of the spirit based on gender and not the spirit who is the gift giver. I I'd be afraid. I will be afraid to stand in between you and the Holy Spirit trying to tell you what to do and not do. I will be afraid. I pity the fool who stands in the way. I pity the fool, said Mr. T. God named you gender. God named you Ezer. Um, the Holy Spirit gave you your gifting and it's not based on gender. So these humans are created in equal power. They have equal dominion over the earth, but not dominion to dominate over each other. There's no domination over the other. There's no scarcity here. There's just abundance. Man does not create woman. God creates woman. Man is neither spectator, creator, nor consultant in her creation because he was asleep. <laughs> he is not a spectator. He's not consulting with God. Like, I'd like for you to do this and make like her like this. Nope. God just said, I need you to put you to sleep because I just need a piece of you so that both of you are in essence from the same dirt and dust. Okay, but he was neither consultant, creator, nor spectator in her creation. Her creation is a mystery. Isn't that beautiful? That you're a divine mystery? That 
Adam did not even see how God created you, but he was the first to see you, first to know you, most to love you. So this lie that the woman is cast in the lesser role by order of creation, order of temptation, that woman is temptress and troublemaker is just not true. And I just, we just wanted to sit in that for a minute. And he sings to her. He sings to this one who's created right next to him out of this beautiful cry. That's the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, is this song. And if you follow the story next, it says that the man leaves the father and the mother it's so untraditional, even culturally speaking, in ancient Near Eastern culture, for the man to leave the man's family to go to the woman's family. And immediately we see that they're leaving and cleaving, but it's the man who is leaving his to go be with hers. And then it says they were both naked and they were not ashamed. What a story. What a beautiful vision. What an invitation. And what we see in the very next chapter is all of it fall apart. But what I love is that the writers of the New Testament pick up this idea that there's a new Adam in Jesus. There's a redemptive Adam, one who is created in that movement of the spirit and the earth and the Godhead all together again. And this new Adam gives us a redemptive vision. How is man supposed to relate to Ezer? Look to Jesus. Hmm. Say that. Watch my Jesus. Right. Watch how Jesus... Um, in every single relationship he has with women, does anything possible to bring about the Ezer within them. Right. To release them within the Ezer within them. Even when he doesn't have ears quite at the initial moment to see and hear the Ezer, he, he is patient enough to sit around and go, no, no, okay, I got it wrong. Yes, there's Ezer in you. Right. Have all you need. You of great faith. Amen. And so watch my Jesus. Come on. To see the one who's supposed to come alongside to see redemptive biblical manhood. <laughs> you want to see what Jesus looks like? You want to see what men and women are supposed to look like? We say, we follow the life, love, and justice of Jesus. We'd love to take a moment to pray both for the men in this room and then the women in this room. And then we're going to come to the communion table, women and men, as woman and man lead us in song along the way. So. My brothers, I would love to pray for you. And however you feel led in your body, in your posture, in your being, to sit, to stand, to kneel, to open up your hands, to keep your eyes open or closed, however you feel led. I want to pray for my brothers in this room. Father, this imagery of leave and cleave comes to mind. That we as men in this room are going to have to leave some old ways behind. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to cleave to a new way. Right. We're going to have to cleave to a new vision, Jesus. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to leave behind the patriarchy that we have inherited. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to leave behind the domination that we have embodied mm -hmm. in our own bodies, in our own voices, in our own beings. Mm -hmm. Jesus. The relationships, the boardroom tables, the colleagues and coworkers, the mothers and sisters and daughters and wives and friends. God, just imagine every man in this room as a little boy. And they were just looking to 
see what this is supposed to look like. I can't be what I can't see. And so God, for the places where we weren't given clear vision, would you restore our vision, God, to show us what redemptive humanity looks like, what redemptive manhood looks like, what it looked like when you created us, God, who you have called us to be, not what culture has called us to be. It says this is what a man is, not what our fathers or our lack of fathers in the home called us to be. But God, we have to leave some ways behind to cleave to a new vision. And Father, for the places where we have been less than faithful, for the places where we have been harmful,
that Ruach of God that empowers women in all the spiritual gifts available for the whole body of Christ to be edified. God, I pray that you would allow us to find safe spaces and safe people and safe sanctuary to unravel the wound. To go back in slowly but surely like a plane that lands very slowly right inside the wound. And as we become unraveled from these wounded places that you would uncreate and recreate. And give us, God, a new imagination for how we see you, how we see ourselves, and how we see each other and other as our sisters because we are not just one mold. We're not just one thing. We have different voices and different sounds and different pitch and tone and timbre to the melodies of our lives. And so, God, help us sing the melody and the harmony. May we move from being objects of study and history and theology to subjects who generate history and theology. That we would generate healing as women, life, light, love, and compassion. I ask this for my sisters, my Ezra sisters today.